And let's just, right now, before we do that, let's just pray for a heart of revelation, can't we? Lord Jesus, I pray right now that you give us a new revelation of what it did cost. A new revelation of the cross, a new revelation of what was accomplished that day. Lord, give us new eyes for an old truth. Lord, just bless us right now. Anoint us. Jesus, pour your spirit out upon us. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Right? Five-minute clip, the crucifixion. If you don't want to stand here for five minutes, that's fine. But uh, let's just see a little bit of what it costs. Do I have your attention now? That is brutal. Cross was unbelievably violent and torturous. The Romans were experts at inflicting pain. They knew how to kill somebody, knew how to kill them slowly. And they did that to the kindest, gentlest, most perfect person ever walked the face of the earth. You have to ask yourself a question, why? Why did Jesus have to die? Couldn't the Father just forgive without a brutal display? If Jesus had to die, wasn't there a better method? After all, there are a lot easier ways to kill someone than a cross. It's important we have an understanding of the cross and why it happens. The cross is central to our faith. Without it, there'd be no salvation, no forgiveness of sins, no way for us to be reconciled to the Father. In a moment, we're going to commemorate the death of Jesus with communion. But have we really understood the salvation that we so freely enjoy? Do we understand the cost of the free gift? Do we know why it had to happen this way? I'm going to be reading from the book of Romans, chapter 3, beginning at verse 19. I'm going to be utilizing the New Living Translation. Romans 3, 19. Obviously, the law applies to those to whom it was given for its purposes to keep people from having excuses and to show that the entire world is guilty before God. For no one can ever be made right with God by doing what the law commands. The law simply shows us how sinful we are. But now God has shown us a way to be made right with him without keeping the requirements of the law, as was promised in the writings of Moses and the prophets long ago. We are made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. This is true for everyone who believes, no matter who we are. For everyone has sinned and falls short of God's glorious standard. Yet God freely and graciously declares that we are righteous. He did this through Christ Jesus when he freed us from the penalty for our sins. For God presented Jesus as the sacrifice for sin. People are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life, shedding his blood. The Bible tells us that all have sinned. Intellectually, we agree with that because we see sin everywhere. We like to look around and go, wow, I am surrounded by sinners. They're everywhere, especially in the bay, Lord. Sinners are everywhere. But the problem is not just with the other guy. Now, let's say that you sin only three times a day. Some of you be going, three times a day? I can do that. At the end of 50 years of sinning, there would be against your record no fewer than 54,786 sins. Quite a record to take a chance on, isn't it? And many people are counting on good deeds to somehow balance the scales. 
They like the eternal scales of justice theory that when they get to heaven, when they stand to judgment day, all the good deeds go on one side, all the bad deeds go on another, and they're hoping to win out. But friends, I want to tell you that that theory was made by people who don't know the Bible because it's not true. And we know this intellectually. For example, if someone was convicted of murder, they freely admit, they go to court. Yes, judge, I, I admit I, I killed that person. But judge, let me tell you what I'm going to do. If you let me go free, I'm going to join the Peace Corps. I'm going to give all my money to people. I'm, I, I'm, going, to, I'm going to be the nicest, kindest person ever. I want to list all of his good deeds. He said, judge, I'm going to do all these things if you'll just let me go. Do you think the judge would buy that? Not in a million years, and neither would you. All the good you do can never erase the fact that you have sinned because we've all broken the laws of God, and the, and the, the broken laws require a penalty because God is just. His justice is perfect. Justice means that the penalty fits the crime. Around the Bay Area, there are a number of devices that are commonly ignored called traffic signals. Every once in a while, you have a stop sign, and some people mistakenly think that that stands for spin tires on pavement. And so many people stop for stop signs. We might kill somebody or get killed ourselves. But the main reason we stop is there's a penalty behind that. And the penalty makes that a law. Without the penalty, a stop sign would only be good advice, which some treat it like that anyway. The greater the penalty, the more seriously the law should be regarded. Now, God is the governor of the universe, and he has an obligation and responsibility to uphold a moral order and protect the universe from the destructive nature of sin. Sin, if allowed to run its course, will destroy everything. It would destroy everything. He does, the Lord protects the universe through the upholding of the moral law. He wouldn't be a God of justice if he didn't do it. And if he weren't a God of justice, he wouldn't be a God of love because protecting the universe from sin is a function of his love. If you want to see, to see how serious the law is, look at the serious nature of the penalty. Now, if the state of California passed a law that the maximum penalty for murder was a $100 fine, what would that say about the value of your life? The state would be saying that your life isn't worth much. The penalty puts a value on those the law is designed to protect. There's supposed to be equality between crime and punishment, which isn't always the case with human government. But God is perfect, and he's placed a penalty on sin that sin deserves. And people say, oh, why would God send anybody to hell? Listen, God's punishment shows how serious and destructive sin is. And God has pronounced upon sin the most terrible penalty imaginable. How serious is sin? Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. Death. God is a just God, and he will punish sin. And there will be a judgment day. But friends, it's a task that the Lord's not looking forward to with anticipation. Judgment day is a horrible job that no one else is qualified to do. But God is not willing that any should perish. God wants to forgive, if possible, and not punish. But here's the problem. 
how can God exercise mercy safely? Because forgiving sin is the most dangerous thing God can do. It means setting aside the penalty for someone who has broken the law. The most terrible penalty possible has not prevented people from sinning, and now should God remove even that deterrent? If God is going to forgive sin and still be just, something must be done so the offer of mercy and pardon will not lead people to think, well, that was easy. God must not be very serious about sin after all. Then why is God then why doesn't God just go ahead and forgive everybody? Because God is no fool. We would not respect him if he did. Not far from here is San Quentin Prison. Would we respect the warden of San Quentin if he released, if he released everybody who came to him and said, wow, I'm really sorry, and I will never do that again? Do you promise? Oh, I promise. Okay, I'm going to let you go. You say, why'd you do that? He said he would never do it again, and I believed him. Would people say, isn't he wonderful? Such a kind man with a big heart. We'd say, that guy is a fool. That's what we would say. So what would God put in place of a penalty that would cause us to love God and hate sin? There's only one thing, a substitute. So when a guilty person comes before God in repentance and God exercises mercy on that person, that person doesn't get the idea that mercy is free and therefore cheap. It costs the innocent substitute everything. The substitute, but whom? Another mere human being cannot do it because all of us have sinned and we would have to pay the penalty for our own sins. So we could not do it for someone else. Should an angel come from heaven and become the sacrifice. No, because even the sufferings of an angel, were that possible, would not be sufficient to influence and prevent people from breaking the law. Humanity has sinned. Humanity is accountable, and man must bear the penalty. But who can make the sacrifice? Who can be our substitute? Who can take our place and satisfy the demands of the law? Who can make a sacrifice of such magnitude and influence that once it is clearly seen, will do what even the penalty itself couldn't be done, could not do. Who can take our place and redeem us from sin? It must be someone who's innocent. Who can take the place of the guilty, demonstrating to all that the exercise of mercy, the law, is not being compromised. Mercy's free, but it's not cheap. It would have to be someone who would do it solely out of love because he would not owe it to us. It would have to be someone of status and position and authority because his sufferings and death would have to have the utmost universal influence. When people understood what he had done for them, it would have to affect them so powerfully that they would turn their hearts to God and hate sin. But who? In his unfathomable wisdom over 2,000 years ago, the father turns to his son and says, it's time. It's time. The Son of God left the eternal throne of majesty, lay aside his divine prerogatives, and took on himself full humanity. The Son of God became the newborn baby of the Virgin Mary. The angel visited Joseph and told him his name will be called Jesus. God took upon himself human flesh. He became one of us to save us. 
He came to do what we could not do for ourselves and nobody else would do for us. He lived a sinless life. Then about the age of 30, he began his public ministry. He was baptized by John the Baptist who said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus began to preach, Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In that time, another itinerant preacher probably wouldn't have gained much notice. But Jesus began to do something no one else could do. He began to heal people. He healed people from all kinds of sickness and disease. He had authority over demons, setting many free from the oppression of the enemy. Then they started to listen to this man. His message was unlike any other. He spoke of love and forgiveness. He was the antithesis of scribes and Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day. He spoke with authority. He promised freedom. He healed the blind and the lame. He even raised people from the dead. And to top it off, the people's favorite miracle, he fed them. Twice he fed large crowds. Jesus was extremely popular. When you have that kind of food program and that kind of medical plan, you are a popular, popular man. Who needs the government when you got Jesus? The people thought Jesus had come to take over, to give them political freedom. They welcomed him into, him into Jerusalem with shouts of, Hosanna to the son of David. But he didn't come to deliver them from Rome. He came to deliver them from sin. He didn't come to lead a revolt. He came to die. Jesus ate Passover meal with his disciples instituting the Lord's Supper. And they went to the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus prayed agonizingly while his best friends slept. And then Judas came to betray him. The soldiers arrested him. He was falsely accused and condemned to die, not just a normal death, but a cruel, horrible, humiliating death. And now we come to Calvary. The sight shocks us. Jesus is hanging on a Roman cross. We stare at the blood that gushes from his wounds. We remember that God said in Leviticus chapter 17, the life of the flesh is in the blood. I've given it to you upon the altar to make an atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that will make an atonement for the soul. Without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. And then it hits us like a sledgehammer. The blood pouring out of Jesus, the life of the Son of God, is poured out for our sins. How great is the guilt of sin? How great is God's commitment to provide the one and only way to forgive our sin? How great is God's love and grace and mercy? Take one look at the suffering and dying Savior dying in our place. It is the spectacle of the ages. Jesus, the innocent one, the holy one, the perfect one, took our place on that cross. Friends, the wages of sin is death. We deserve the cross, not Jesus. But he died on that cross. That day he fully satisfied the demands of divine justice. And Jesus made mercy possible. If the offender ever thought that his or her sins were not that bad after all, that God is not really serious in his pronouncements against evil, all they'd have to do is look at the suffering, dying Savior. We look and see our substitute dying in agony 
and blood, and immediately we realized that his suffering and his death were caused by my sins. Not just the sins of the world, but my sins. It cost God everything to forgive us. With one last heave of his holy soul, our Savior Christ, it is finished. He dies under the weight of our sins and bridges the chasm between God and man and brings us together. We need to remember, however, the cross of Christ does not automatically save everybody because if the death of Christ saved everyone automatically, it would have the opposite effect. It would, it would say to people, to their sins, the penalty is gone. Do what you want. God doesn't care. The death of Christ is only effective if received by faith. Only if there is repentance. This means we must turn to God for salvation. We must throw ourselves on his mercy. We must surrender our lives to his leading. In the death of Christ on the cross, God shows us a few things. Number one, he shows us how valuable we are. God established our value at the cross. Jesus didn't die for junk. We are created in his own image. We are capable of endless joy or misery. We have no value because of anything that we've done, but because God established our value, and he says that we are precious. Any baseball fans in here? Giants fans? Ace fans? Mariners fans? Yeah. Didn't expect much on that one. There's a baseball player named Onus Wagner. Anyone ever heard of him? Johannes Peter Onus Wagner was an American baseball shortstop who played 21 seasons in the major leagues from 1897 to 1917, almost entirely for the Pittsburgh Pirates. I think Gene saw him play. I'm just kidding. Okay. Wagner won eight batting titles, tied for the most in National League history with Tony Gwynn. He led the league in slugging six times and stolen bases five times. He was nicknamed the Flying Dutchman due to his speed and German heritage. In 1936, the Baseball Hall of Fame inducted Wagner as one of its first five members. He received the second highest vote total behind Ty Cobb and Ty Babe Ruth. Although Cobb is frequently cited as the greatest player of the dead ball era, some contemporaries regard Wagner as the best, regarded Wagner as the best all-around player. Some, most baseball historians consider him the best shortstop ever. Do you know what baseball cards are? They come in bubblegum packs. They're little pictures of baseball players with their stats. You can buy a lot of them. Some people collect them. Well, if you want to buy an Onus Wagner card, there's only 57 of, them, 57 of them in existence. The last one sold was sold by Wayne Gretzky out of his collection. It went for $2.8 million. The value of something is determined by the price paid. What's the price paid for us? How much does he love us? He shows us how much he loves us. For God so loved the world, he sent his only son. That whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. The cross is the father shouting through the ages, I love you. I, you, have, you have value to me. I care for you. It is his love letter 
to us. We also see God's determination to uphold righteousness. Yet he loves us, but he is also holy. We see God's determination to forgive us only on conditions that would satisfy the demands of the moral law and effectively break the power of sin in our hearts. How serious is God about holiness? Look at the cross. God's holiness and justice cannot be compromised. Again, if he would forgive you without a substitute, he would make a mockery of all justice. There had to be a basis for forgiveness. By the cross, we also see the seriousness and wickedness of our sins. How much we hurt him by our pride, our rebellion, our blasphemy, and by the way we ignored and rejected and abused him with our selfishness. It shows us the guilt of the way we've treated others in our selfish nature. It's our nature to make excuses for ourselves. After all, my sin's not that bad. I have an anger problem because I'm a fiery Latino. I can't be held responsible for that. God knows. Look at my mom and daddy. I come by naturally. You know? We have all kinds of things. Oh, I can't be, oh, you know, when I was, when I was little, you know, and, and my, my folks beat me, and that, that helped me become the person I am. I can't be held responsible for that. You see, we have disorders. We have maladjustments. Friends, God has one term for a lot of it. It's, it's called sin. Now, I'm not trying to make fun or make light of you if you have some issues. But we have to be brutally honest with ourselves. Our sin put Jesus on the cross. Our sin. Our sin did it. It's time we face the truth about the horrible nature of sin. If the sight of the pure Son of God taking on himself full humanity to die in agony and blood on an old rugged cross under the weight of our sins, if that doesn't make break our stubborn hearts and make us love God and hate sin, then nothing will. If the agonies of Calvary do not overcome and conquer your heart, then the thunderings of hell will not. I started with the question, why the cross? Why not some other form of death? Because the cross was the only thing that would sufficiently induce agony and pain necessary to give us the message of the awfulness of sin. There's something about God we might not think about. God is efficient. Theologians say like he's efficacious. What does that mean? It means he always does the right things to the right degree and the right quantity. I want you to let something sink into your consciousness. The cross, as horrible as it is, was not overkill. It is what had to happen. Jesus had to suffer as much as he suffered. Now we see our sin in all of its ugly reality. How can we even think of holding on to or going back to the sins that nailed Jesus to the cross? Temptations lose their appeal in the presence of the cross. How can anything that would hurt Jesus have any appeal to us whatsoever? God has provided something even greater than the penalty of sin for us. Why do I love Jesus? Because I'm afraid to go to hell? Well, I am, but that's not why I love Jesus. That might, what gets, might be what gets our attention initially, but why do we leave sin alone? Because Christ 
bore our sins. Our sins nailed him to the cross. We obey him because we love him, and we'd rather die than hurt Jesus. There's something greater than the threat of the penalty. It is our love for Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And that's why we serve him, not just to stay out of hell and not just for the blessings of the kingdom, but because Jesus died and forgave us to break the power of sin over our life. And he has won our hearts for all of eternity. We serve him because we love him. The Bible says that Jesus gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity. Let the power of the sacrifice of the Son of God break your heart and break the power of sin in your life. Don't hold on to your sin that nailed him to the cross. You cannot hold on to sin with one hand and receive the gift of salvation with the other. Let go of your sin, let go of your pride, and embrace Jesus Christ because he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world and he'll take yours away if you'll drop it and turn to him. On Sunday morning, we'll celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. He died, but he rose again in triumph. But before the resurrection, there had to be a cross. A lot of Christians want to go from Palm Sunday to the resurrection and go around the cross. It's not the way it works. We cannot have the victory of Easter unless we stop at the cross, unless we stop dead in our tracks and surrender our life. On Good Friday, Today, we take time to stop and remember the cross. We take a moment to contemplate the cross and realize what put in there. Maybe you've seen that BC comic. It says, why do they call it Good Friday? And the person answers to the effect of this. He says, well, if you're condemned to die and somebody took your place and set you free, how would that make you feel? Good. Good. He offers us freedom today. We're going to celebrate communion together. Tonight, we want to invite you to come. I want to go ahead and invite the worship team to, to come on back, if you would. I'm going to ask the men to put the cross in place. Can you put the cross in place, please? We're going to receive communion. Let me explain how we're going to do this. A lot of times you're served communion. You get to sit there and people bring it to you, and that's great. But tonight, we did something similar to this on Sunday. I want you to get out of your seat and come to the cross. I want you to get out of your seat. I want you to, I want you to come and bow. I want you to think about what this cross means. I want you to think about the suffering and the dying that had to happen for your forgiveness. Sing it. And lead me to the cross where your love poured out. Bring me to my knees, 
Lord, I lay me down and rid me of myself. I belong to you. Only oh, me. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. I would like you just to go ahead and sit down, and you'll see why in just a moment. Go ahead and be seated. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. What does it mean to remember? Does it mean to go, oh, yeah, I forgot about that. It means to meditate upon something to think on it, to let it get inside of you, to remember it. Remember the cost. Jesus said, remember me, remember my broken body, remember my shed blood. This little piece of bread represents the broken body of our Lord Jesus Christ. In Isaiah it says, on that cross he bore our infirmities, our sorrows. Jesus was broken so that we can be whole. Are you hearing what I just said there? Jesus is broken so that we can be whole. Tonight, if your body is broken and you need a touch, I want you to stand. I want to pray for you as we partake of this bread. Say, my body's broken. I need a touch. Jesus bore your infirmity on that cross. And you're his child. You have a right to pray for healing today. You have grounds to stand on, friends. Jesus bought it. He paid for it. We need to receive it. Amen. Jesus, you see right now all these standing. And by standing, they say that their body is broken. And Jesus, you allowed your body to be broken on our behalf. You took pain and punishment or sorrows or iniquities or sicknesses up on that cross so that we can be healed, so that we can be whole. And Lord Jesus, right now I pray that by your power you begin to do healing work in this place. Lord, that you would heal every sickness, every disease, every infirmity, Lord. Lord, some of your kids are broken and they're asking you for wholeness today. Bring wholeness now to everybody. Every sickness, every disease. We just release the miracle-working power of Jesus into this room for wholeness. The price has been paid, and we speak wholeness and life to every broken body right now in Jesus' name. And we say, thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, that you allowed it to happen. I can't understand why, but you did. Your love is beyond comprehension. Thank you, Jesus, for allowing your body to be broken. We take it now as nourishment to our souls. 
In your holy name, amen. Let's eat the bread together, shall we? Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord. Hallelujah. It's his life we're partaking of. Amen. You can go ahead and be seated. I just believe God's going to do some miracles. This cup is the new covenant. This, the shed blood is our forgiveness. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Jesus shed his blood. I don't know everybody in here. I hope that you've given your life to Jesus and you've surrendered him. But if you haven't, now would be a really good time. Why not, what are you waiting for? You want to hold on to your dysfunctional life? You want to still be in charge? How's that working out for you? How's that working? Jesus came to rescue you from your bad decisions, from your dysfunction. He came to rescue you from sin. He came to rescue you, rescue you from everything. Why don't you take him up on it today and surrender your life to Jesus? Amen? Thank you, Jesus. Lord Jesus, we just want to thank you right now. We want to thank you for shedding your blood for us. We want to thank you that your blood wipes away every sin. Every sin, there is no sin greater than your blood. There's nothing greater than your power to forgive. And Jesus, thank you for shedding your blood so that our blood doesn't have to be spilled. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for saving us, Jesus. Thank you for saving us from hell. Thank you for making a place for us in heaven, in paradise, where we will be with you because of this cup. Thank you, Jesus. 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 As we drink this cup together, if you have not given your life to Jesus, I want you to just quietly say, Jesus, by drinking this cup, I give my life to you. But before you walk out of this room, I want you to find somebody that knows Jesus and say, pray with me. Pray with me because tonight I gave my life to the Lord and I need to know what to do next. Let's drink the cup together, shall we? Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. I hope tonight that we've gained a little bit of extra revelation of the cross. Let's just take a few moments and we lead us in worship and let's just thank him. Let's just thank him for what he's done. Let's just thank him for the cross. Thank him, thank him. Remember his, his broken body. Remember his shed blood. Let's just take a moment and worship the Lord together. You can stand if you'd like. You can kneel if you'd like. But let's worship together and let's just thank him. Let's just thank him. AJ,